Um, I want to invite you at this time to join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Mark 9, we'll be considering the first 13 verses together this morning. Uh, The following statements were made by Christians, and perhaps you've heard similar statements. Why is it that since becoming a Christian, my life has become worse, not better? Why is the Christian life so hard? I was under the impression that when I became a Christian, my life would get easier. But following Jesus has actually, actually introduced all kinds of challenging complications into my life. Uh, right now, today, some of you are experiencing the challenges and costs of following Jesus. And, and maybe they're, they're small things that are just there and they're constant or maybe they're quite significant. But your choice to follow Jesus has impacted your marriage relationship. Maybe you're the only one in your family that's trusted Christ, and, and when you put your faith in Christ, that created a whole state of, um, well, it upset, upset the equilibrium of your home and maybe even your marriage. Or it's impacted your family dynamics or your relationship, perhaps with one person in the family, your career or work life, perhaps, acceptance by others, friendship, finances, all kinds of things. I mean, we'd have brothers and sisters around the world, some of which who have, have given their life. Because they chose to follow Jesus. Do you think it could be fair to say that followers of Jesus need to be encouraged? At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus' closest followers, I think, greatly need some of that. A large dose of encouragement. Because they've just broke with the the religious establishment. There's now been a pretty clean break between Jesus and his followers and Judaism and the religious establishment. I mean, it's been head to head. Jesus just told his closest followers that he was going to suffer and actually even told them that he was going to die and they're left scratching their heads and they're not tracking. He just told them that in order to follow him that that would include reorienting their entire lives away from themselves. He told them to prepare to give up their lives on Roman crosses. Jesus crushed so many thoughts of triumphalism that his followers were having. And really, to top it all off, Jesus just rebuked Peter and and the the sternest of ways and actually just called him Satan. There's, I don't think any question, there's a certain heaviness in the air and major spiritual exhausting warfare is underway. And Jesus knows that and he knows that his closest followers need to be encouraged. And maybe you sit here today and you do too. And few things provide that, like seeing the glory of Jesus Christ revealed, which is precisely what happens at this point in Mark's gospel, in Mark 9. And I think it's an encouragement to all of us to take heart because Jesus Christ is glorious. Follow along as I read the first 13 verses of Mark 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John (coughs) and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. I believe this passage lays out for us two reasons to be encouraged in the two kind of paragraphs that we're looking at this morning. And the first reason is this, take heart because Christ's future glory is coming. Look back at verse 1 and just notice what Jesus said to these men. He said to them, truly I say to you, this is a fact, guys, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus just told his disciples that the kingdom of God would come, and it would come with power. And he also mentioned that some of them standing there, not all of them, but some of them would see it before they died. And that statement appears to then be fulfilled in the following verses as Jesus is transfigured before three of them. Jesus' glory has been and will be revealed. Look at this as it happens in verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus hiked somewhere up what was good chance Mount Hermon, which towers uh, 9,200 feet up in the air, and he climbed that, uh, up this mountain, whichever one it was, with Peter, James, and John. Uh, this trek, we don't know exactly where they're at on the mountain, but this trek may have taken a good portion of the day, several hours to hike there. Uh, the Gospel of Luke records several additional details. It says that they went up to the mountain to pray. Also, the transfiguration occurred as Jesus was praying and possibly after dark. Because Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep. Luke 9.32 says that Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. The text is quite clear in Luke that, that when this happened, and when it's happening, they're fully awake. Because it says, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. According to Mark 9 verse 2, Jesus was transformed. In other words, his form changed in front of them. One writer says, for a brief time, Jesus' human body was transformed, glorified, and the disciples saw him as he will be when he returns visibly in power and glory to establish his kingdom on earth. Can you imagine this? What it must have been like for these men to see this? As we try to understand this change in Jesus' form, I think we're, we're kind of wondering and asking ourselves, what was going on? What did he look like? How did he change? And Philippians chapter 2 is particular, particularly helpful, I think, because it speaks of another time that Jesus' form changed. And that was when he took on humanity. Let me just read Philippians 2, 6 to 8. It says, Jesus, who though he was in the what? The form of 
of God. It's talking about his pre-incarnate or existence, his existence before he came to earth and was born as a baby and added to himself humanity. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking, and here we have our word again, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Okay, so there, were, there was a time when, when Christ humbled himself and took on flesh and blood. Obviously, that, in, that involved a change of his outward appearance, so to speak. God is a spirit. You, you cannot see him. And yet here Jesus comes taking on flesh and blood. At the transfiguration, Jesus unveiled his glory for these men to see. They saw him bodily in the glory of his post-resurrection form. They saw him as he will appear when he comes again. What did he look like? Well, the gospel writers draw attention to his face and to his clothing. Matthew 17, verse 2 says, And his face shone like the sun. I mean, we were talking about intensely bright. You can't look at the sun. His face shone as the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus is giving his disciples a brief glimpse of who he really is and a brief glimpse of what is yet to come. When you're a kid, it's always fun to play with someone else's toys. I don't know what it is, but everybody else's toys are somehow better than yours, right? You go to somebody else's house, and they've got the coolest toys. When I was a boy, there was a toy at my grandparents' house that I really enjoyed playing with. I imagine it probably belonged to one of my uncles when he was a kid. But it was one of those early generation uh, Transformer action figures. And in its original form, it looked like this sleek, super fast race car. But with a few pulls and twists and yanks, it transformed into a powerful looking robot. That toy was both a car and a robot, but so long as it was in the form of a car, you didn't see the robot. The robot, we might say, was concealed by something. It was concealed by the car. Christ revealed his glory on the mountain. And that's the, the, the language here. He's being transformed. He, something's being revealed. But revelation implies that something is actually, was previously concealed or hidden. Christ's glory had been concealed by the fact that he had added to himself humanity. He had added to himself a human form. And on the mountaintop that day, he pulled back the curtain. And one day when Christ returns, he will be revealed like that from heaven in glory. But what that means now, though, is if he's going to be revealed, then currently you and I are living in a time and place where his glory is to a certain extent actually concealed. And as you look around and as you look at your life, <coughs> it may not always look like Jesus is the king. It may not look like Jesus is winning or will win. It may not look like there's a whole lot of hope in the world. In fact, it may actually look like the darkness of sin and evil and the curse and Satan have triumphed. I wonder if the disciples were starting to feel that way as Jesus is talking about dying and a cross and their crosses and suffering. It may look today like the kings and kingdoms of this world reign supreme. He's telling these men to prepare to, to, to die on Roman crosses. You mean that Rome is stronger than the Messiah? That doesn't add up for these men. 
And maybe today it looks like the kings and kingdoms of this world reign supreme. Maybe it looks like Jesus is nothing more than a weak man in the dirty drab clothes of a carpenter who is powerless here and now. Christian, take heart. Because Christ's future glory is coming. It has been and it will be revealed. And as this text goes on to describe that, to describe his glory, we learn further that Jesus' glory transcends anything here. Look at verse 3 again. It talks about his, his clothes there on the mountain. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, Mark distinguishes the radiance and whiteness of Jesus' garments, and he puts it in this kind of language. He distinguishes it from anything you could imagine here on earth. In other words, no one here on earth could make his clothes as white as they were and as vibrant as they were that day. This is otherworldly. In other words, you don't have a category in your brain for his majestic glory. It's otherworldly, far surpassing what the human mind can comprehend. Jesus' glory transcends everything. And his glory as well is pointed to by all the Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 4. It says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Moses and Elijah show up too. And they, they seem to be representing the Old Testament in some way as forerunners of sorts who prepared the way for Jesus. But I think one of the ideas that's coming together here is that all of the Old Testament is pointing to and in harmony with Jesus and his glory. <coughs> The transfiguration shows Jesus and the Old Testament in perfect harmony. And we see that in verses like Luke 24, verse 27. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared and he spoke to some followers on the road to Emmaus. And there, as he was walking with them, we read this. And beginning with Moses and the prophets. Moses and guys like Elijah. He, Jesus, interpreted to them, those men on the road that day, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament's about Jesus. Jesus' glory is pointed to by our Old Testament scriptures. And also I think we see here that Jesus' glory is tethered to the cross. The disciples cannot fathom this. How could he be glorious and the conquering king and there be suffering in a cross? And in this account we see those things are so closely tied together. You cannot separate the glory of Jesus Christ from his suffering and death on the cross. They are fused together. Look at verse 4. It says, And they appeared to them, Moses or Elijah with Moses, and note the next phrase. It says that they were talking with Jesus. You ever wonder what they were talking about? Sure would have been an interesting conversation. Well, you, you don't actually have to wonder what they were talking about because the Bible tells us. Luke 9.31 says that they spoke of his departure. That word departure in Greek is actually the word exodus. Here's Jesus talking with Moses about an exodus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were speaking together about Jesus' coming death. Jesus' glory. Here he is in, in radiant splendor with these other two men talking about his death and his suffering. His glory is tethered to the cross. 
and his glory, we might say, is terrifyingly awesome. Look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, I mean, leave it up to Peter to be the first one to say something. He's going to get something in here. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. You think? It's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Truth be told, we don't really know what Peter was talking about. I mean, you read commentaries and scholars on this. Everybody's kind of like, um, what was Peter <laughs> getting at? Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I don't know. But it's obvious that his thinking was terribly misguided. But before we're too hard on him, look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say. (laughs) Peter has no idea what to say, but he's talking. He had no idea what to say, and here's his explanation. They were terrified. I mean, can you imagine seeing Jesus like this? It would be awesome, and it would be humbling, and it would be horrifyingly, terrifyingly awesome. And that's exactly what's going on. Jesus' glory is terrifyingly awesome. And his glory, we see of it as well, that it is affirmed by the Father. Look at verse 7. As all this is happening, we read that a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and it's the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All throughout the Old Testament, the cloud represented God's presence and glory. Uh, Think about the wilderness wanderings and this pillar of cloud. And think about whenever God came and he inhabited uh, the tabernacle or the temple. Think about in Solomon's day when God came to that place, so to speak, when the temple was dedicated. This is God the Father's glory and his presence. And he's speaking, and the Father is affirming the glory of the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And it seems that one of the things that the Father was getting at as, as he spoke to these men there on the mountain is Jesus had been speaking. He had been speaking about his suffering and his death and how that would be followed by glory. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And when he speaks about anything, listen to him. Jesus' glory is affirmed by the Father and his glory. It is the culmination of all things. Look at verse 8. I mean, these incredible events have occurred. And then verse 8 says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with with them but Jesus only. Moses, Elijah, they step aside. They're gone. And Jesus is the focal point. Everything points to him and his glory. He is the king, the man standing there in the drab, dirty clothes of a carpenter clothed in human flesh and blood. He is the king. I have a distinct memory from around five or six years of age of my dad teaching me how to mow. I really wanted to mow. And the reason that I really wanted to mow was because I watched my dad mow. And whatever my dad did, I wanted to do. I saw my dad pushing the lawnmower and I thought, I want to do that. 
I want to push it. And the day finally came after I had been nagging and bugging my dad, 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 I want to mow. Can I please mow? Please, please, please. And the day finally came where my dad was like, okay, I think, you know, maybe he's just barely old enough to give this a try. And so uh, my dad was trying to teach me how, one of the things he was trying to teach me was how to actually mow a straight line. I'm still trying to figure that out. But how do I get this lawnmower, just an, especially right along the neighbor's property, how do I get that nice and neat and straight? And my dad encouraged me to pick a spot out there, um, look across, look where you want to go, aim that direction, look that way, point the lawnmower that way, and go. Well, that was great, but my hands were actually above my head, and my, hand w- my head was below the handle, and my body was at a 45-degree angle. Right? I'm pushing with all of my might, and the temptation was doing that for my head to be down and push like this, just plowing forward. And my dad was saying to me, son, you got to look up. And you might be plowing through life like that, and you, you've got your head down, and you're pushing hard, and you're at a 45-degree angle, and it's tough, and it's hard, but, but you're going looking straight down at the grass, and I would give you the same encouragement that my father gave me that day. Look up! Look up! And that's what this text is saying. It's saying, look up! Jesus Christ is coming, and He is glorious. And yes, as He speaks to His disciples, there will be suffering, there will be a cross, there will be death, but look up! The King is glorious. And you need to do the same thing here as you walk through life. Take heart. Christ's future glory is coming. And the, the display of His glory there um, on the mountain should reassure you about what the future holds. Meaning that you can and should live today with confidence and hope. I know who my King is and I know what He is like. Take heart. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you feel discouraged about what's going on in your world and you feel discouraged about what's going on in your life, take heart because Christ's future glory is coming and it's not a new glory, something that will begin. It's a glory that's there now and he will be revealed from heaven. Are your eyes fixed on what lies ahead? I mean, are you just looking down? and you become really discouraged, or are you looking up and you're looking at Jesus and you're awaiting his return? Are you actively waiting for that? You know, as you and I do that, it drastically reorients our lives. It drastically impacts how we view today and our daily experiences, the the good things and the bad things, the hard things and the easy things. And if you're discouraged or feeling overwhelmed or depressed, I just want to encourage you, if you could slow down for a moment, That's what happened in this text. Jesus is saying to these men, hey guys, we're going to slow down for a minute. Everything that's going on down here, we're going to put that on pause and we're going to go up on a mountain and I'm going to show you my glory. And it was worth that time that it took to hike all the way up there, probably to spend the night up there and to see that. And for you, I think it's also true. God wants you to slow down. And look at Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and in all of his glory and all of his promises and all that he says the future holds and meditate on that. Chew on that. (coughs) And I would ask every single person here, are you ready for Christ to return in his glory? 
are you, as if you're a Christian, are you thinking about that? Are you meditating on that? But, but maybe you sit here and you're like, I haven't given much thought to that at all. And, and truth be told, you're not ready to meet Jesus Christ in his glory. And the fact of the matter is that when Jesus comes like that, it will be a great day of blessing for his people. And it will be a day of horror and terror for those who don't know him. Peter and James and John, are, they are terrified by what they see on that mountain, but they are reassured this is our king. But when he is not your king, he, he is dreadful to behold in his glory. And that's why he went to the cross, so that you could behold him as a friend and not a foe. He went to the cross to die for your sins, for mine, to pay for them in full, to satisfy God's wrath on your behalf and mine for our sins so that when Jesus comes, we can enter heaven in his glory with him forever. But if you have not acknowledged what Jesus did for you and you have not said, okay, I agree, Lord, I am a sinner and I do not deserve to meet you on that day uh, on good terms. But I, if, you, if you have not acknowledged what Jesus did for you on the cross and embraced that for yourself, it's a terrifying thing to meet this great glorious king. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be a wonderful day. And what God calls you to do is repent and believe. I am a sinner. I acknowledge that. I am not ready to meet the king. I deserve his judgment. Lord, would you forgive me through Christ's work on the cross? It was important to Jesus that his disciples then and now understand that something precedes his revelation and glory. His cross and theirs. And that actually brings us to our second reason to be encouraged. Take heart. Because as odd, odd as this sounds, your present suffering is normal. How do you think the first recipients of Mark's gospel felt? As they suffered under the intense persecution of Nero for being Christians. Things are not going well for them from a human perspective. They're paying a price for, for their following of Jesus. How do you think they felt? Well, they were following Jesus and possibly wondering, like you might be, what on earth is going on? I didn't know it was going to be this hard or that the price would be this great. Take heart. Your present suffering is normal. And the verses that follow offer a, few, a couple of proofs of that. Here's the first proof. Uh, look at Christ's path to glory through the lens of the resurrection. Look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, <coughs> he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. I mean, they've got to be excited about what they've just seen. Jesus is the King, and wow, his glory is awesome. But Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to keep their mouths closed about what they've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He just keeps coming back to words like that. Death, suffering, cross. Why is he telling them to keep their mouths closed? Because they have not yet wrapped their minds around the fact that Jesus Christ must suffer before his glory will be revealed. And it is only after the resurrection that they will grasp that. So I want to ask you, well, why don't you look at Christ's path to glory through the lens of the resurrection? We're being invited in this text to say, okay, come step on this side of the resurrection and look backwards. And what do you see? 
What's the road that you see? Well, in the life of Jesus Christ, you see the road to glory paved by suffering. You see the cross preceding the crown. And that is our first proof that your suffering is normal. Take heart. What you go through here and now is very normal. Your challenges and difficulties as a Christian, those are normal. But a second proof is offered of that. Look at Christ's path to glory through the lens of the Old Testament. Look at your scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Let's look here at verses 10 and 11 as they speak back to the Old Testament. So they kept these mat- this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Death, resurrection, we just don't get it. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come. Jesus mentioned his death and resurrection, and the disciples cannot put that together in their minds. They seem to be hung up, particularly on the suffering idea, which prompts this question. Well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? I mean, we we see in our Old Testament scriptures that idea, and it doesn't line up with what Jesus seems to be saying in our minds. They were wrestling with their Old Testament scriptures because God had said back in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then notice what the verse says Elijah will do. It's really positive. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I'm not going to go into, into great depth on that text, but basically what these men understood Their understanding was that before Messiah came in glory, that Elijah would actually come and he would pave the way for the Messiah to be received, positively received. Well, if that's how this is going to work, these guys are are thinking, then all this suffering and death talk doesn't add up, right? I mean, this is going to be positive. People are going to welcome and embrace the Messiah. He doesn't need to suffer. This is all going to be good. Well, look at what Jesus says in verses 12 and 13. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. You're right. But then notice his next comment. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus is saying the Old Testament scriptures point to a suffering Messiah, and he's probably referring to passages like uh, the, the ones in Isaiah that speak of a suffering servant. Jesus is saying the Old Testament scriptures point to that kind of a Messiah, not just a triumphant one. And Elijah had actually already come, and he had already prepared the way. Matthew 17, verse 13 says that when Jesus said that, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Oh, that the Old Testament comments about Elijah, that was actually a reference to John the Baptist. The Old Testament indicated that the Messiah would come in glory, but that his coming would be preceded by suffering. And also we note here that John the Baptist suffered. The Messiah would suffer. The disciples would suffer. That's the expected path all the way. It was charted even all the way back in the Old Testament. Suffering followed by glory. 
a few years ago, a friend and I hopped into the truck to go to what we thought was just going to be, you know, the most amazing hunting spot. And we punched the destination into the GPS and off we went. It was our first time to this location and we were so excited. This is going to be great. Like we can't wait to get there. Before long, we found ourselves driving on one of the worst gravel roads imaginable, and the GPS was saying that we had another 40 to 60 kilometers to go down that road. And we were like, oh, this is awful. And so we stopped, and we thought, you know what, maybe we took a, r- a wrong turn. Like the GPS, I don't know what's going on, but I, I think we got something wrong here. And so we stopped, and we took a look again, and to see, we checked the GPS again, and, and really, we didn't want to be on that road. That's all there was to it. It was garbage, and it seemed like the wrong one. Do you know what, though, we found? We hadn't taken a wrong turn. We weren't on the wrong road out there in the middle of nowhere somewhere. That road was the road to our wonderful destination, and that was the route that we needed to take. Sometimes in life, the road gets bumpy, it gets dangerous, and truthfully, maybe it even becomes a little bit miserable. And we start asking ourselves, man, did, I take a, did we take a wrong turn here somewhere? Where did we go wrong? I didn't think the Christian life was supposed to be like this, and, and we're caught off guard and we're surprised when the going gets tough on the Christian road. And this passage is telling us, don't be surprised. Christ's road was suffering and then glory. Take heart. Your present suffering is normal. The path of Christ's glory actually reassures you about what today holds. Meaning that you should expect that there will be a certain degree of suffering and that you don't need to be surprised or unsettled by it or or really um, disoriented. When your coworker or your boss throws a dart or assault at you because he knows that you're a Christian and he's just throwing this thing in there at you to, to try to make it stick and hurt and sting, you realize, like, that's not unusual. That's normal. When you're a young person and you go to school and, and they're in that setting, your faith causes you to not fit in so well. That's normal. When your unsaved spouse doesn't get what you're up to with church and the Christian life, and and maybe they poke fun at it, and here's a jab here, and here's a jab there, and why are you wasting your time on Sunday? Let's go do something else. Or can you just lay off all this, this Jesus stuff and church stuff? And maybe you're getting mocked and picked at. Maybe it's really harsh. Maybe it's just minor. But it gets under your skin and it bothers you. Do you realize that that's normal? And actually, we could go around the world to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are giving their lives because they put their faith in, in, in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and they are dying. And a passage like this would say, that is not abnormal. It's actually normative, all the way back to Jesus Christ and his, his 12 disciples and the early church. Maybe what's more concerning than the presence of suffering in the life of a Christian is the absence of it. Because Jesus says, no, listen, you need to understand, this is the road. Suffering followed by glory. 
take heart. Jesus Christ is glorious and he is coming. And if you are confident of the destination, it will help you travel the road. I know what lies ahead. And I know what I was told this road will be like. Any suffering you experience in your connection to Jesus in this life is temporary. It's generally understood that Mark's gospel comes to us actually from Peter's preaching and Peter's eyewitness report. Well, Peter was on the mountain that day. He saw Jesus transfigured with his own eyes. He was the one saying all kinds of crazy, ridiculous things. I mean, this, this text doesn't exactly paint Peter out in all that flattering of a way, and he seems to be the one that's, hey guys, here's what happened. He heard the voice of the Father. He saw Jesus transfigured. And after the resurrection, the time when Jesus said some of these things would start to make more sense, he spoke these words in 2 Peter 1, 16-18 about what happened that day on the mountain. And I just want you to listen to these words and note the confidence with which Peter speaks. This is not a man who's floundering or wishy-washy or wondering what lies ahead or what to expect today. This is 1 Peter 1, 16 to 18. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't some myth that somebody told somebody about. No, no, no. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Here is Peter the Apostle speaking with confidence. We have seen his glory and he is coming. Spoken with confidence and hope, the glorious king is coming again. And so what do we do this morning? We take heart. Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, is glorious and he is coming. Would you bow your head with me?